Coming up on Studios America, Rob Aurora from New York Post joins us to tell us how people in Minneapolis are standing up for the police. You're not going to believe this story. Cabot Phillips from The Daily Wire has a crazy new idea for a podcast. We'll tell you all about it. And just as anyone with a functioning brain could have predicted, consumer good prices are skyrocketing in the wake of the pandemic and the incoming Biden administration. Let's see how bad things really are as we do inflation. Stu does America. <laughs> oh, am I excited for you today. You, what a lucky little viewer or listener you are. Congratulations, you're you. Today, we go into conservanerd mode. It's chart a palooza 2021. Conservanerds unite. We've got a bunch, look at this. This is my stack. Yes, listen. Oh, it's a lot of charts. We got a lot of them today, and we're going to update you here in just a second on what we're looking at in the world of inflation. But first, I want to give you an update as to where the political side of this stands. One of the things that was kind of interesting over the past few months is that Larry Summers, the Obama-era economist, very, you know, even though, you know, you might not agree with every opinion of Larry Summers, he's a well-known guy, well-respected guy, um, a person who knows what he's talking about, Okay. And he started saying things like, you know what? Maybe spending multiple trillions of dollars in a really short period of time, maybe that leads to something that's not so great. Maybe a little inflation is on the other side of that. And everyone dismissed him from the left. They said he was crazy. And I don't know, maybe he lost his fastball since the Obama years. But what's interesting is... That's sort of changing a little bit recently. I want to give you a story from Politico. The headline is, a new concern for Biden. Could Larry Summers be right about inflation? They write, former Treasury Secretary has been warning since February that President Joe Biden's big spending agenda was creating the risk of an inflation spike this year, potentially cutting into the economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. For the moment, at least, Summers is looking prescient. The government said Tuesday, this is a couple weeks old now, uh, that the consumer price index rose 5.4% in June from the same month last year, the biggest jump since 2008, as costs for everything from used cars and trucks to restaurants, uh, meals and hotel stays continued to soar. It marked the second straight month of sharply higher prices. June prices also unexpectedly rose 0.9% from May. That doesn't sound like a big number, but that's very odd from month to month, undercutting the argument that the increases only look bad in comparison to last year when the pandemic was raging. If you think about what's happened here, and this isn't all from the Biden era, era, though a lot of it is from the COVID era, uh, we spent a lot of money in a really short period of time. Multiple times, over and over again, we cleared that multiple uh, $1 trillion mark. And we just kept spending and we kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Finally, Biden gets into office. He spends immediately almost a couple, uh, two trillion dollars. Uh, he wants to spend another trillion dollars on infrastructure. And after that is the big one. I mean, we think it could be as high as three or four trillion dollars. I know Bernie Sanders wants six trillion dollars in a jam it through with 50 votes, all Democrats sort of wish list proposal that they're gonna to try to sneak through here before the midterms come and they have to face the music. Now, this is a remarkable amount of spending. And if you think about 
Conservatives' critiques on government spending over the past 20, 30, 40 years basically boil down to this. You can't keep spending money we don't have on things we don't need. Uh, you can't do it. You can't do it forever. Eventually, you hit a limit. And every time I have an economist on or somebody who's a budget expert, I ask them, where is this limit? Because this is more money than I ever dreamed people spending. And are we going to are we going to have consequences of this over the short term? I mean, long term, we know it's coming. But short term, is this going to bite us? Well, we're starting to see a lot of those uh, those issues pop up now. And that's not a huge surprise. This is bigger than just spending related to a pandemic. It goes much, much further than that. And I want to bring to your attention, if you don't have never seen it before, um, a, a guy named uh, Mark Perry, uh, Mark J. Perry is an economist. And I don't know, I think of him for some reason. He, he brings back memories of when the internet was not evil. <laughs> I don't know why. There's something about like he's, He's put out these graphics and these charts for years and years and years and years. I mean, I remember reading his blog, seems like 10 years ago. I don't know when he started it. It seemed like it was back at a time when the Internet wasn't so mean and terrible and, and awful. And he would put out these economic charts, and they would be interesting to see. Uh, he sort of looks at things from a smaller government perspective, but, you know, he, he always giving you information maybe you didn't know about the market. And one chart he's he's produced for as long as I can remember is a chart about inflation and breaking it down by categories. So not just looking at inflation as this general number or maybe looking at some of those main things that we think about, um, uh, that, you know, maybe gas prices or something. He breaks it down in a bunch of categories and there's something really interesting to learn. So I'm going to give you this. This is from 2000, uh, the turn of the century to 2020 a 20-year period of looking at cons uh, prices for different items. And we're going to go through several of them. It's Chartapalooza! Welcome, conserva nerds. I will describe these charts to you, of course, if you happen to be listening on podcasts. We still love you. Even though you can't see the charts, I want you to mentally picture the charts. Close your eyes as you drive down the highway at 80 miles an hour and picture all of these wonderful charts. Okay, so here we go. Uh, January 2000 to June 2021, we have an overall inflation on all items of a 60.1%. I don't know if we can take these things full screen. I know we have little borders here, but these are such small numbers and charts. If it's possible, we could do that. But 60.1% overall inflation for all items combined. Thank you very much. So let's go through the highest, the worst inflation from January 2000 to June 2021. Can you guess it? It is hospital services hospital services have risen about 200 percent again at normal inflation is about 60 percent over that time period hospitals up 200 percent second place college tuition and fees up uh, let's say 160 percent in that time next highest college textbooks and once this is an interesting one to look at you see it rising at about the same rate as the other three and about five years ago, it breaks off and flattens out. It's the first time that number had flattened out in all of the time that Mark Perry has been doing this chart. And the reason is the market's starting to defeat the monopoly of college textbooks. Textbooks. We'll get into that here a little bit in a second. Um, next up is medical care. Medical care services up about 120%. College textbooks was about 140 if I didn't say that. 
Uh, then next highest is child care and nursery school at about uh, maybe 110 percent inflation over the past 20 years. Uh, we next go to uh, average hourly wages, and they have been up about 80 percent over that time. So sometimes you hear people say, well, the, these aren't keeping uh, pace with inflation. Well, in some ways it's true. The average hourly wages, wages are up significantly, about 80 percent. But some of these products have outpaced that uh, percentage. Next up, housing. Housing is up just over average, about 65 percent inflation over the past 20 years. All right. Now, food and beverages. Now, this doesn't count how much you eat, you know. I mean, if you just keep pounding more and more food, it might go up even higher for you. But again, about average, about 60 percent over the past 20 years, those prices have gone up. Next up is new, our new cars. And new cars have risen. You've heard a lot about new cars rising very recently. But that's a new phenomenon. About 5% inflation over 20 years for cars. In fact, you'll see, if you see the chart here, you see a, basically a flat line for 19 of those years. The only increase, the 5% increase, has really been in the last year. And we know uh, the situation that's gone around that with uh, semiconductors and all the talk that's been in the news recently. Next highest is household furnishings. About flat, really no increase in cost on household furnishings over 20 years. No real inflation in that category. Clothing, fascinating. Clothing has actually dropped a little bit. Clothing has gotten less expensive by a few percentage points over the past two decades. Uh, cell phone services. Cell phone services have dropped dramatically. Now, that's not a huge surprise if you think about 20 years ago. This is pre-iPhone. This is pre a lot of the innovations that we take for granted today. But the cell phone inflation has actually, it's been deflationary and has reduced about 40% in prices and if you think about going back then, you're paying for by the minute, uh, all the stuff that you used to do back in 2000. It seems like a, a lifetime away. Next highest would be computer software has actually dropped dramatically about 60 percent more affordable than it was 20 years ago. Um, next up is toys. Toys, same story, basically about a 60 percent drop. And finally, the lowest, the biggest drop. I don't know. I don't think this is that surprising. Televisions, TVs have dropped by about 90% in price. If you think about this, again, you got to think about what you're getting for the money, too. I mean, I remember, you know, when flat screen TVs were thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Nobody could afford them. And now you go into Walmart for 180 bucks and get a 45-inch TV that's much better quality than anything on the market back in 2000. These things improve over time. This is one of the brilliant outcomes of capitalism. It's why I love it so. It's constantly making things better. It's constantly making things cheaper. And you might say, well, wait a minute. That's not the story you just told. We just looked at that giant collection of, of categories, and many of them were up. But I want you to look a little closer at that chart for a second. If we could bring it back up, the final one we showed. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight that have gone up above 60% inflation, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven that have gone down, maybe become a little less expensive for people compared to inflation. What do you see? What patterns do you see? Again, the ones that have gone up, hospital services, college tuition, 
college textbooks, medical care services, child care and nursery school, average hourly wages, housing and food and beverages. And then the ones that have gone down, new cars, household furnishings, clothing, cell phone services, computer software, toys and TVs. What is in common for all of these things that have gone up? The government. Look at all of them. All of the things the government constantly subsidizes. All of them. Hospitals, colleges, medical care, child care, average hourly wages. We have a, a, a minimum wage. The government is involved in wages all over the place. Housing as well. All of these things are propped up at different levels. I mean, think of the housing, the mortgage situation with the de deductible mortgage, all the programs that are involved around housing. Food and beverage, maybe not quite as much, but there are certainly large, large programs uh, funding food and beverage as well for many, many people. All of those things have gone up. Is the government involved in televisions? Not, not really. There's no huge program that's saying, hey, we need more money for TVs or toys or computer software or cell phone services. You could argue the Obama phone, but that wasn't a massive program. It was just one that we had problems with, not as much a scale, but just by the idea of it. It was so shocking to us that they, the government would give money for cell phones. That's why it was a big story. Um, clothing, not really. Household furnishings, not really. Does the government get involved in new cars? I mean, they increase the cost a little bit with their regulations, but they're not generally speaking, unless you're buying a Tesla giving you lots of money to buy cars. The point of this here is clear. When the government gets involved, prices go up. Things become much less affordable. Handing money out to people for college tech textbooks and medical care does not help the pricing. Um, one category that uh, Mark does not have on this particular chart is things like uh, eye surgeries, uh, laser eye surgery, and um, cosmetic surgery. What we find over and over and over again, those are medical those are medical situations with huge advancement. I mean, that, the, the te that technology has come uh, leaps and bounds from the year 2000. And why don't those things have massive price increases like all the other medical situation, uh, that, situations that we're covering? And we talk about so routinely. The government isn't involved. The government doesn't fund plastic surgery largely. The government doesn't fund a laser eye surgery as much as they do these other medical practices. Over and over and over again, we see that when the government isn't involved, the market is able to make things more efficient, better, and cheaper. And the opposite is also true. That is something that, forget about what's going on right now. Forget about the trillions of dollars we're throwing out the door. It's a much bigger problem than that. And it burns us over and over and over again over long periods of time. We don't even see it going away. Over and over again, we are told we need to just a little bit more money to fund this thing for these people because they need the help affording it. And then you look at everything the government doesn't touch and people are able to afford it naturally because the market is able to put those prices where they should be, dropping where you're getting better products for less money. That's the brilliance of capitalism. And over and over again, the government just gets in the way and screws it up. If you happen to be one of those people,
who says, I wish the bags under my eyes would just go away. If that sounds like you every morning, you're not alone. Bags and puffiness under the eyes are a problem for millions of American men and women until this very moment. Why? Well, we've got the new GenuCell serum with plant stem cell technology from Chamonix. Susan from New Jersey wrote, I've been using GenuCell for a couple of months. The puffiness around my eyes is gone. Even the crow's feet and small lines have disappeared and haven't come back. I love your product. I use it under my eyes, on around my cheekbones, and on my eyelids. And it's with the uh, instant effects that GenuCell has. Uh, you'll see results in the first 12 hours or your money back. They guarantee that. So you might be thinking to yourself, that sounds like a lot of claims. There's no way they can do that. Okay, well, take them up on it then. Order now, get 50% off all the GenuCell packages for summer at lovegenucell.com slash stew. Again, you can catch your money back here if it doesn't work for you. Again, it's lovegenucell.com slash stew. lovegenucell.com slash stew. <sighs> what a crazy year it's been. Wouldn't you say? About a year ago, basically everything in America seemed like it was on fire. Remember those times? Let me welcome back uh, those times in our memories with like the idea of how we can make it better. How about that? Let's think that way. Welcome to the program, Rob Aurora. He's a columnist for the New York Post and the author of the recent piece, How a Minneapolis Resident Fought, cities, uh, fought the City's Decision to Defund the Police and Won. Rob, how's it going? Hi, it's good to be here. You know, I, I, it's such a strange thing. I, I'm reading your story and I'm thinking to myself, I read news every single day. I am, you know, I'm in the middle of this world and I didn't hear anything about this story at all until you wrote your column. I want to start at the beginning, though. Uh, we go back to a year ago in the summer, all the problems that are going on all around the country. Minneapolis, hardest hit. They decide they're going to go with the AOC option here. They're going to defund the police. How has this decision worked out for them? Right. So I think it's important to, first of all, clarify that they did announce that defunding was going to happen but that's not the the key factor here because that's not really that that didn't end up actually happening because they later reversed their decision earlier this year. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was that there was widespread anti-police sentiment in Minneapolis. Um, if you recall, there was a whole police precinct that burned to the ground in the aftermath of George Floyd. Widespread riots, protests. The city council they vowed to dismantle the police force, and later it was defunding. And because of this widespread anti-police sentiment, and we, we saw this again and again with different cases that weren't egregious situations like George Floyd. We saw this with Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, he had a knife out and he was resisting officer, uh, what the officer was saying. And uh, the officer decided to shoot and it was immediately labeled a, a racist incident. Same thing with Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. And this year, again, with Micaiah Bryant in Columbus, Ohio, the young uh, black teenager who was about to plunge her knife into another girl's upper body. And that and, and the officer decided to just heroically make a split second decision and shoot, which was which was the right decision. But that was labeled a, a another racist, egregious um, excessive shooting that happened. And so you see this again and again. And so what's happened is is you're essentially raising the cost of policing. You're making it very difficult for cops to do their job because they feel like 
certainly when when the bad thing happens when when there's somebody when there's an officer who engages in misconduct who you know who's kneeling on george floyd's back and neck for nine plus minutes that's wrong obviously but when officers make the right decision as in jacob blake as in rayshard brooks micaiah bryant etc etc and they're still punished by the media by politicians even by joe biden and, and kamala harris you know in the aftermath of the jacob blake case uh, joe biden tweeted out something about another black man being killed by the police this is about systemic racism when there was absolutely no evidence to support that conclusion and so and then so the story of Minneapolis is essentially a demoralized police force. It's a, it's a police force that was under national assault, essentially. Mm. And so you, what you had was more than 200 police officers leave the force in the aftermath of George Floyd. Many uh, saying, uh, many due to uh, claims about PTSD, medical leave, many retired as well. And you're seeing this across the country, too, in major American cities. You're seeing many officers leaving retiring early, leaving on, on, on medical leave and these kind of things. And so in Minneapolis, the result of, uh, of this, this great, this, this unprecedented departure of, of officers and this demoralized police force is a, a skyrocketing in, in homicides over the past year. Last year was the second deadliest year in the city's history. And this year, again, homicides are up an additional 20, 30%. Um, according to uh, recent stats. And so you, you have black residents predominantly in these inner city areas who are, who are begging for more police, who are calling the police and the police won't arrive because they're short more than 200 officers. And so my story was, was highlighting this uh, lawsuit that uh, this uh, lead plaintiff, Don Samuels, who I interviewed, who eventually won his lawsuit and the, the city is now required to hire more officers as a result. Yeah, introduce us to the hero of our story here, because I think this is a really, uh, this is a, not an easy thing to do, to take on the system like this, and really sort of demand th that the city government do the things that they're supposed to be doing. His name is uh, Don Samuels. Who is this guy? Yeah, he's a Jamaican immigrant. He's uh, kind of an, an American success story. He came from Jamaica. And uh, he rose up the economic ladder, uh, working in uh, toy manufacturing. Um, at one point, that was uh, what he started with um, after he immigrated. And uh, later on, moving into the city council uh, several years ago, then eventually running for uh, for the uh, Minneapolis uh, mayor position, which uh, he didn't end up winning. But he's, you know, I, I spoke to him for over two hours uh, recently about uh, what was happening in Minneapolis. And it was, it was very interesting. Like he, he himself is not Republican or Trump supporting. He's a Democrat. He's, he's very anti-Trump actually. Um, so, you, you know, you wouldn't, this isn't somebody who you would classify as Republican or Trump supporting or whatever. So this is somebody that the media should be potentially supporting. Mm. But, but he is saying something that, that, that transcends Trump versus Biden, Republican versus Democrat progressive versus conservative, which is the, the necessity of protection from the police. It's a necessity to live and be able to thrive and function in your community without having to live in perpetual fear of nightly gang violence, of, of kids being shot. As I, as I mentioned in the piece, in, in recent weeks, you had a six-year-old shot 
while uh, driving uh, in her mother's car in the back seat. Another six-year-old who was killed in uh, amidst gunfire going on in, in very similar in a very similar situation uh, in the back seat of her mom's car, eating a happy meal, and, and mm. a stray bullet caught her. Another nine-year-old was was shot uh, while jumping on a trampoline at her friend's birthday party. This is a kind of reality. This is a kind of very grim, almost dystopian reality in this community. And no one seems to be interested in, in talking about it. And I think, I think the reason is, is very clear. It's, it's the fact that this story shows cops as the good guys. It shows the, the necessity, the importance of having a, a functional and adequately staffed police force yeah. rather than this being a story about police brutality, which obviously garners infinite more media and uh, political attention. You know, I tell you, Rob, I've got an eight and a nine year old myself and you, you tell these stories and they're just absolutely horrible to listen to. And I can tell you as a citizen, if this sort of stuff was happening around my area, I probably do something about it, which is move. Right? Like, I'm just going to escape the situation. This guy decides to do something different. And uh, tell me about what he did. And is this a blueprint for other people in the same situation? Right. And, and just to touch on what you mentioned briefly about wanting to leave in this kind of situation, that is a sad reality in, in Minneapolis, right? Now, many residents are, are, many community members are leaving in mass numbers because of the, the rise in crime, because they're afraid of sending their kids out to school in the morning. And so, and, and, and this is one of the larger, more uh, broad economic effects that you see when crime rises, when, when the police are unable to, to, deal with this kind of violent crime, you see residents leave, you see businesses shut down, you see, um, you, you, you don't see economic growth, you see the exact opposite, and you see a community that is completely devastated as a result. And as, as far as what Don has done, I think it's, it's an act of heroism, really. It's, it's a heroic act. It's something that it's very inspiring. It inspired me. That's why I talked to him. That's why this, this uh, interested me. And it's so basically what he, he did was he last fall amidst the the unprecedented homicide wave in Minneapolis, he and a group of other uh, black Minneapolis residents. And, and I highlight race there, by the way, only to cut against this narrative that there is a universal consensus among among black Americans that they don't need the police, which is what which right. is kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the BLM narrative is that we need less police, we mm-hmm. need to reduce police presence, but but poll after poll and just anecdotally talking to people, it shows that 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 idea is completely fiction. It's it's the exact opposite. Inner city community members, regardless of race, want the police. And, and so Don Samuels, he took action in his own hands and decided to file a lawsuit against the city for inadequate policing. And recently, earlier this month, the, the judge ruled in his favor and has ordered the city to hire more police officers uh, in the coming uh, months and years. It's really amazing and has had no national attention. I mean, this is a an extension of a story that everyone was talking about. An African-American citizen said, hey, or Jamaican-American in this particular case, has sued and won to get more police officers on the streets of Minneapolis. This is a story people should be talking about. And Rob, you've been, you've, you told the story very well. We appreciate your column, uh, your uh, columnist over at the New York Post, author of, of the column, How a Minneapolis Resident Fought City's Decision to Defund the Police. 
and one. I'll make sure I uh, tweet out a link uh, shortly. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. You uh, people can find me on Twitter at r a v a r o r a one. That's where I'm at, and uh, you can find most of my writing in uh, the New York Post. All right, Rob, thanks for coming on the program. Yep, thanks. AOC is the victim today, of course, because someone accused her of not understanding something yet again. Uh, this one is uh, Sean Spicer. Uh, has a uh, situation where AOC is selling merchandise. Uh, she's making a push into the political merchandise field, uh, which I would know nothing about. StuDoesMerch.com. It's just a terrible thing. You should not get involved in it. StuDoesMerch.com. Don't do it, people. StuDoesMerch.com. Of course, I'm a capitalist. So I'm free to say, hey, you want to buy some stupid shirt? Um, I'm selling it to you because I want you to buy it so we can make a profit. That's how this works. Uh, I'm not afraid to tell you about it. Apparently AOC is. She's the victim here. Uh, Sean Spicer says, uh, using capitalism to push socialism. AOC responds to this one, of course, and says, not sure if you know this, Sean, but transactions aren't capitalism. Capitalism is a system that prioritizes profit and any of all human and environmental cost. But for what it's worth, our shop is unionized, doesn't operate for profit, and funds projects like treat, I was going to say tree tutoring. That would be the type of thing that she would fund. No, it's free tutoring, food programs, and local organizing. Here's the thing. Uh, Number one, the transactions. Transactions aren't capitalism is like, I can't even get into the basic. I don't have enough time to explain how ridiculous that point is. But again, if she, what is happening here? A normal company says, I'm going to charge you a little bit more than this thing costs, and we're going to decide what to do with this. Maybe we'll put it into advertising. Maybe we'll pay our executive billions of dollars. Maybe we'll do what we think is the right thing to do. What is AOC doing? She's charging more than the product costs, and she's taking the excess and donating it to her dumb tree tutoring, whatever the hell she's talking about. She's just doing the same thing. She just feels like she can manage uh, your money better than you. That's what every socialist thinks. Uh, she thinks she's better at using your money than you are. And for that's, that's totally fine. Anything on the other side of that, anything uh, that a capitalist does is at, what is it, at all costs, it doesn't matter what the cost is, environmental or to humans. Because she's a human. And she's almost right on that. Back in a second. Hey, hey, what do you say? Happy to welcome back to the program Cabot Phillips, writer and editor of The Daily Wire, as well as a part of their newest podcast, The Morning Wire. Uh, Cabot, how's it going? Doing very well. How are you doing? Really well. And first of all, i got to say congratulations. Uh, the Morning Wire, brand new podcast, is number one, the number one news podcast in America right now. That's freaking awesome. It is freaking awesome. It's especially awesome when you look down the list and you see NPR and New York Times down there. And we're not going to talk about the fact that uh, Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles are a little <laughs> lower down there, too. I'm sure that they're going to overtake us at some point. But for now, in this moment, 
we're celebrating that fact. Yeah, there's a, there's a fun thing that goes on when you launch a new podcast and you go all the way to the top of the charts and it feels it's like so <laughs> exhilarating. Uh, I, you know, it's 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 funny because the you know Daily Wire, the Morning Wire, now ahead of the Daily, the New York Times uh, flagship podcast, as you mentioned, Ben and and so many other big names. It's it's really a great accomplishment and it's very difficult to do. So congratulations. Thank you. And that is kind of one of the goals you bring up NPR and New York Times, or I guess I did, but one of the goals there is kind of giving people a different side of the news every morning. Um, you know, we talked to tons of people in the production of the show and we kept hearing the same thing over and over. It was, I want to get the news. I want to have a quick 15 minute thing. I don't have time necessarily for an hour long show. And I end up listening to the NPR or I listen to the New York Times because I don't know who else is making a quick news show like that. And I bang my head against my steering wheel every morning <laughs> listening to that. So this is a, a quick morning news podcast for people that just, they want to cut past the nonsense, all the commentary. We do our best to keep it as down the middle as possible so that you could send it to your crazy liberal friend and that they wouldn't find anything too objectionable with it. Um, but obviously we don't hide the fact that, you know, the Daily Wire, we're still proud of our conservative convictions. So we're not going to hide that fact. Yeah. I mean, it's a crazy idea to just try to just tell people what's going on in the world every day. Uh, and, and, you know, look, it's, it's, there's a bunch of podcasts in the morning. You know, I'll occasionally listen to The Daily. Sometimes they have some interesting uh, things on there from The New York Times. Uh, ABC has one as well that, that does the same type of thing, like a 20-minute broadcast. And I listen to that sometimes, and I'm just like, they... Do they think any conservatives listen to this? You know, sometimes it's fine, and then other times there's just straight-out propaganda for 15 consecutive minutes with no no backing of, of it with facts, just constantly left-wing messaging. It's like as if they just want all of their conservative listeners to go away. I think that they, in a lot of ways, don't even know how biased they're being. A lot of these people sit around in these writing rooms and they think, we just finished up our script for today's episode. Great job, everyone. That's just unbiased news. <laughs> and when you have a writing room and when you have a newsroom that's completely full of the exact same ideologies and you're in this insular bubble, which the mainstream media is, they don't actually know what real Americans think, you end up putting out content that is completely biased, even if you don't realize it. So I like to think that there are some people that are actually trying to do unbiased news and, and they're just failing because they don't realize how biased they are. But there certainly are obviously shows that are nefarious in their intentions and claim to be unbiased, but know that they're pushing an agenda. Um, and one thing we're trying to do differently is just saying we're very upfront about our biases. There might be times where, you know, we come at a news story from a certain way because of our bias. But that's the difference. And that's the, what The Blaze and Fox Nation and Daily Wire do. We say we're going to give you the news the best we can, but it's coming from a conservative slant. And I think that disclosure is the main difference. We don't hold ourselves up to some pure righteous standard of we're never going to have any sort of bias and we're going to be able to cut through all of that. Obviously, every person has some bias. The difference is we admit it. You guys admit it. It's NPR and the New York Times and all of those that aren't admitting it. And that's where people get caught up. Yeah, you know, th this is something that I think has, has been part of the left for a very long time to try to present their opinion as this sort of scientific, pragmatic truth. I, I, Jonah Goldberg has written about this many times uh, in his books, where instead of just saying, okay, like, this is our opinion, this is where we're coming from, this is how we see it, it's presented as this thing that, like, you are living in a conspiratorial crazy world if you don't just go along with this view. Their view is science. Their view is pragmatism. They just want to do what, what works. And, uh, you know, we see this all the time. We can he we can detect the bias because we're beat over the head by it all the time. But I don't know that the average news consumer can even detect it. 
And that's the scary thing is how many people throughout America are doing their best to just get the news and they end up with a completely biased version of it. One way that I think you can also see this all playing out is the way that the left responds when you or when they don't like the version of the news you're putting out. NPR, it just so happens that the day our new podcast came out, they published this big, long expose hit piece on the Daily Wire and saying that Ben Shapiro is the devil that has rigged Facebook for his favor and that we're these evil spreaders of misinformation. And there's just something ironic about hearing a taxpayer-funded institution put out a fake hit piece on a private entity because they don't like what they're saying, accusing us of misinformation when their story was riddled with inaccuracies. And I'm sure it's just a coincidence they put that hit piece out the day our new podcast came out to challenge them. And also a coincidence that they put that hit piece out right after Joe Biden says and his administration say, well, we've got a list of conservative outlets that we're not happy about. They're spreading misinformation. So I'm sure all of that was just a coincidence. It just happened to come out at this time. But it is kind of, I think, telling of the fact that they feel threatened. These institutions, they feel threatened by your outlet, by ours. They see that the American people are getting tired of the same old, same old with news. They want alternatives. And I think that's why we see the success that we saw with the launch of our podcast. And that's why so many alternative news outlets like ours are continuing to explode while they're shrinking. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's very true. And by the way, we had uh, Ben Shapiro on the radio show today. Uh, if you go back on today's radio podcast, it was it's worth a listen. Ben goes through this entire story because they really don't even ever say you said anything false. They're just trying to to frame it in a way uh, that makes it seem like you're misleading people with the truth somehow, which is a, a fascinating concept. Um, let me get into the White House thing here, because the White House is an extension of the media. The media is an extension of the White House at this point. And they really, I'm surprised at how overt they're being, saying, like, we are going to Facebook. We're going to tell them the accounts we want pulled. And by the way, they're not even all conservative accounts. I mean, it's RFK Jr., for example, on, on vaccine misinformation. It's, it's all sorts of uh, around the, the, the sort of ideological uh, thing. Uh, but that is a doesn't this set off alarm bells to every person who's ever seen a government go wrong? You don't have the government telling open free media what people they should be censoring. It would be nice if there was a movement in America that was standing up to fight fascist ideas like a government shutting down the free press. I just wish there was a movement that was fighting fascism and fighting fascist ideas, but I guess there just isn't one out there, or at least one that would be willing to speak up when it's fascist ideas that are going against people they don't like. But this is kind of peak hypocrisy, right? You've got the left that has been for the last four years when they suddenly decided to start caring about fighting fascism and just labeling everything they don't like as fascism. Mm -hmm. And then when you have the media openly colluding with the leader in the White House saying, we're going to start shutting down these ideas that we don't like, and we're going to basically put a pressure campaign out there Facebook wants to remain in the good graces of the White House and vice versa. And so they're not working in concert together. I just imagine if President Trump had been given this same proclamation from the White House, if he'd been saying, you know, there are these outlets out there I don't like and wink and a nod, we're going to go tell social media outlets that they need to start banning them. What kind of response there would have been? And I think that the scariest thing here is just the complete dissolution and the complete just, you know, redefining of terms. What they're doing, they're not even saying there are real inaccuracies here or here are the point by point examples of all the facts they've gotten wrong. No, they're using the term misinformation 
which can mean anything to them. In that NPR piece, I want to read you the exact quote here. They said, if you strip enough context away, any piece of truth can become a piece of misinformation. And that's kind of the mantra of the White House here, too, where they're saying misinformation doesn't mean untrue. Misinformation means maybe doesn't have the context that we would like to see. Misinformation for them just means it's the information that might lead people to a conclusion that we don't like. AKA conservative conclusion. Mm, uh, very, very true. I and mean, you point out what, how would the media react if Donald Trump were to do these types of things? And, you know, they would react like it was the end of the democracy, the end of the republic. And the only reason I know that is because they did it. I mean, when, when Donald Trump would come out and criticize the media, just saying the words fake media was treated as if it was a physical threat of violence against individual reporters. And here they are, they, they don't see any problem with with the administration actively from the briefing room, basically saying they're going to go out and shut down accounts. It's incredible. And isn't it funny, too, how when President Trump did go after the media, which, oh, of course he did. I, I don't mean to say that President Trump didn't take shots at the media. The difference was he wasn't calling on outlets to completely be shut down or calling on social media giants to shut those outlets down. That's the difference. And it is funny. There were so many think pieces written by the insufferable mainstream media all along, whenever Trump was saying those things, they were billing themselves as these brave heroes who were speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. They were standing up. They were filling the breach to make sure people could continue getting information. And they were doing so at great risk. But now when it's conservative outlets that are under attack by a government entity, where are those pieces now from the media saying, now is the time to stand up for the integrity of a free press? I don't know about you. I think we should just start doing it ourselves. Stu, you're a hero. You're brave. You are filling in the breach. You're standing up to an authoritarian government and regime. Good for you. I feel brave, too. I think that I'm a hero because I'm also under attack. And we just got to get this, this narrative rolling on our own, I think. There you go. I mean, Cabot Phillips, uh, writer and editor for The Daily Wire, American hero and part of the brand new podcast, Morning Wire, the number one news podcast in America. Congratulations again. This is something that is very much needed in the marketplace. And uh, congratulations on you guys putting this out. Uh, you can get it anywhere you get your podcasts. And where can people uh, find out more? They can go to dailywire.com. And you can become a member to get the special Daily Wire newsletter also that's coming out with the Morning Wire. That's what all the big boys are doing. And we're going to start doing our own newsletter as well that goes along with the Morning Wire podcast. And it's going to have kind of more extensive breakdowns of all the stories. But we really appreciate all the support. Very cool. Cabot, thanks so much for coming on the program. Absolutely. The show is free on YouTube every day, so go there and you can drop comments below. We see them all the time. Let me give you a couple from yesterday's show. Uh, I much enjoyed the bad part of your thoughts today. Yeah, there's a dark side, and you saw a little bit of it yesterday. Uh, how about this from Patrick? First time watching your show, Stu. Great content has breadth and uh, def uh, defensive proof of items discussed. Learned a lot about China's ripoff tactics in our markets. Very true. Appreciate the information presented with humor. We appreciate that so much. Thank you so much for checking the show out on YouTube. Please subscribe and uh, drop your comments below. Also, uh, you can listen to the show every day. You don't have to see my fat face. Uh, go to any place you go to your podcast. Make sure you review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Students America, it's greater than a Democratic debate. Truly the stupidest five-star show on the net. Five freaking stars. Thank you so much. Uh, this stupid show makes sense. I feel heard and represented by Stu. Thank you so much. Five freaking stars. Thank you so much for uh, making sure that you uh, tune in every day and rate and review. And remember, when you do so, you're not only helping us, you're hurting others, and that's the most important thing. Before we leave, 
There's a new Mattel Comic-Con exclusive Jurassic Park playset, which features a scene we never saw in the movie where Samuel L. Jackson get his gets his arm torn off. Now you too can play and have Samuel L. Jackson's arm torn off because if you want, your kid is psychotic if they want this toy. Uh, I will say I do like the idea of the brutal movie character murder that didn't happen playset. Uh, the Newton Hicks Alien 3 playset would have been mildly interesting, but really I want to see the Forrest Gump Jenny's AIDS version of the playset, which is just, it's as dark. I think.